Welcome to a brand new episode of The Good Sign with me, your host, Donna Simintov. I am so happy to be here right now and sharing the stage with a wonderful woman who I've come to respect and admire. Pessy Sinner is here joining me today. And I have to say that they often say that good things are worth waiting for. And I do believe that the timing was right. And when Pessy reached out to me, I just knew that this was a podcast that I didn't want to miss out on. And certainly an inspirational conversation is about to take place. And so I'm really excited and honored that Pessy agreed to join me today. And Pessy, I'll let you take it from here. Why don't you let our audience know a little bit about who you are and why you reached out to me to be a guest on my podcast. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. And absolutely, I've been listening to podcasts for quite a while now, since about the time when they started doing them. And there's something about hearing people's stories and learning so much about different people that just makes it worth my while. And I just happened to hear your latest episode um, about Cassidy, who has undergone a very life-threatening um, experience. And as I was listening to her, I that you were the person that I wanted to um, interview me on my story, which had some similar experiences. And that's what made me reach out to you and, you know, to talk about this. Yeah, thank you so much, Pesty. It really does mean the world to me. And yeah, my my interview with Cassidy, um, has, you know, she had been through something really traumatic and had really had a amazing like life altering experience and her life was saved and she she was there to tell the story about her own personal experience and I think what's really unique and special about our conversation today is that what you're here to talk about is your daughter's your daughter's near-death experience and how that was for you how that was for you as a mom and I think that that's just such a beautiful conversation to have because as a mom myself um it's it's something that you can't really put into words, how much love and how much hope that we have, you know, invested in our children. And then when something happens, especially something medical, it just turns our whole world topsy-turvy. And when you, when you emailed me and you told me what your daughter had gone through and that you just felt that you wanted to share that story and you wanted to talk about it, I thought to myself, as a mom, we, we tend to get so caught up sometimes in like the minutia of mothering and in the aggravation and the stress and the day-to-day schedules. And I do think it's important to just gain some insight today from hearing you and, and all about wh- where your daughter has come from and where she is now. And of course, hearing it from your perspective as a mom is just going to be so beautiful and meaningful. So why don't you tell us, I know you're a mom, you have more than one child, right? You have three children, you told me? Yes, I have four children. Four children, okay. Three girls and one boy. Beautiful. And and this daughter, her name is Esther, and yes. she's the oldest, correct? Yes. So tell us a little bit. So, so I mean, growing up, totally fine, normal. Everybody had a normal, healthy, upbringing childhood. Absolutely. And then just a few years back, I think it was three years ago, when your oldest daughter, Esther, was already married with children of her own. Um, I believe you told me she was 23 years old at the time. Tell us a yes. little bit about, about what happened. Okay. So she had a two-year-old daughter and a four-month-old son at the time when this happened. And she had been quite run down um, before the, during the pregnancy, after the birth. Like she definitely had a harder time physically getting back to herself. And I still didn't think anything was really unusual. 
and it happened on Purim, which is some people call it the Jewish Halloween. And she told me that she realized that she wasn't urinating. So she thought she might have a urine infection. And she went to the doctor, she went to the urgent care and she was given antibiotics. And then she called me the next day and she said it still was not getting better and she was having some tingling in her feet and some discomfort. So she said, should she go back to the doctor? And I said, yes. And at that point she was already in Muncie and at her in-laws where she was going for the weekend. And she went to the urgent care there. She may have gotten another prescription. And sometimes Friday night, when she woke up to nurse the baby, she fell while holding the baby. And that's when she realized that something was very wrong. And she decided to call um, the paramedics, which is Atsala, into Westchester, because that was the best hospital in the neighborhood. And at that point, she was in Muncie. And it was, of course, it was Friday night, as it always tends to be when emergencies happen. Mm -hmm. um, so you, were you notified right away or you didn't know about this till after the weekend? So I found out about it Saturday night, right after Shabbos was over. And I still was not very alarmed at that point. Um, I specifically remember that I was on a food plan, like I was really watching what I was eating. And we went to the pizza store to bring food. And for some reason, the pizza was a large weight. So we brought potato knishes. And I specifically remember that we had extra because I wasn't eating. So we ended up giving it to the doctor. Uh -huh. and, we were, and he took it. He was so grateful and hungry. And we, we were laughing and joking and talking about, oh, if it's this illness, then it's six weeks. If it's that illness, then it's three months. Like we were all like in the best mood thinking this was a very, very, you know, small issue. You still had that grace of having a sense of humor about it. Absolutely. And I love how, I love how the memory is intertwined with food as so many memories tend to be. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I feel like a lot of my memories are about potato knishes too. By the way, I don't know why specifically. Wow. Yeah, really. Yeah, it used to be my <laughs> used to be my favorite food when it was you know when I didn't have to think about things like what sticks to your hips, you know. Yes, yes. Long before <laughs> the uh, metabolism problems kicked in. <laughs> yes. So okay, so take us back in time. So so at this point, uh, you're just assuming it's it's going to be nothing and it's all going to be fine. Right. And then the next day, we realized that she's going to be in the hospital for a bit. And, the, and her foot started to get paralyzed. We started to get a little worried. I think she was actually put, when she was in Westchester, she was put in a regular room. Like they didn't even have anyone looking at her specifically. And I, I was told that I should go to, to Muncie where my granddaughter was because we decided when, we, when I was at the hospital that night and we met my son-in-law's parents who are amazing I, I remember being so grateful, thinking if I have to go through something like this, thank God I am dealing with people like this because yes. these are the most amazing people to share such a difficulty with. I, I just remember having such a grateful heart just about that. And, and what was amazing was that she said she's going to take the infant and I'll take the two-year-old, which was also better for me for many reasons. And I'm still in awe till today because she had a five-year-old child at the time with spina bifida who was in a wheelchair. And how she managed to take care of an infant plus that child, till this day, I do not know. Just an amazing human being. Absolutely. And, you know, Absolutely. It's, and, and, it's, when, and it's when you're really pushed against the wall, when, when difficult things happen. That's, I feel like, when you see the real nature of a person. For sure. For sure. And just your awareness opens up. Things that you may have 
realize and appreciate before, but the appreciation really deepens. Yes. I guess, I guess the reason why I started about the food is because of the next story that on the way to, on the way to pick up the child, I decided to make a stop in Westchester just to check up on her. And I still thought at the time that everything was just fine. Like it was just going to be a brief, like check in and see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was because I was on the food plan was I said something like, I, I, I took my daughters along who at the time were 13 and the other one was maybe 17. Um, I said, okay, I'm, I, I took like 15 minutes to prepare my food. And I said, I said, everyone, please take along food for yourself because we're going to Muncie and back. So whatever you need, please take along. And of course, no one did because you know, mom <laughs> doesn't prepare the food, right? Exactly. So we get, we get to the hospital and everything was different. First of all, she was already in ICU. And there was a nurse there, a Jewish nurse called Esther that was taking care of her. And I remember noticing how dedicated and caring she was. And I remember like feeling like, okay, like she's going to save her. She'll make sure she's okay. You know? Yes. And it's amazing how in those moments we have to put all of our hopes into medical professionals. And it's such a scary feeling. Yes. And, and I remember all of a sudden, we were suspended into this place of unknown. We just didn't know what was going on. There was a sense of something is happening to her, but we don't know what it is. We don't know what the diagnosis is. And she's getting very sick and it's getting very scary. And I remember my 13 year old at that point getting very frustrated because she was starving. She hadn't had food for many hours because all I had in mind was to do my food when I left. Yeah. yeah. And I, I didn't know what to do because at one point I'm a mother to her. She's, you know, 13, she's hungry and 13 year olds can't wait, uh, you know, except when it's a fast day. Right. And, and, and I'm worried about my, my married daughter and, and I, I'm the mother. I need to be there for her. And I remember being so torn. And all of a sudden I looked up and I saw there was a big hole in the room. So we walked in there and we looked around and it was fully stocked with all kinds of stuff. This is pre-COVID. And my daughter said, her eyes opened wide and she said, I can take anything. And I said, yes. And what's amazing about that is that I was a volunteer for Makimi, which is like a cheer up squad because I enjoy singing. Mm -hmm. So for a couple of years now, I'd been singing for patients and I was actually a lot at Columbia and I was very familiar with the big hole in rooms. I used to hang out there and have coffee with my partner if the patient was not ready for us because she was doing some kind of treatment. So I'd been in these rooms multiple times and I never ever saw the big hole in room as a patient's family like that moment where I suddenly realized, oh, that's why they have all these things for this moment. And isn't that something how here you are volunteering your time to like, you know, cheer people up which is such a beautiful, amazing virtue. And yet somehow when you're on the other end of it, that's almost being on that end is what allows you to have real empathy. You know, it's, it's like you almost have to taste that difficulty to really truly understand what it, what it really means to have access to a room, like you said, where you could just walk in and you don't have to worry and everything's there for you. And it changes your whole perspective. It was amazing because I felt like I didn't know anything. You know, all those years when I went to the hospitals and I was just giving my time, but I felt like I knew nothing, you know? Yes. Absolutely. At this point, medically speaking, 
were they doing all kind of blood work to try to get to the bottom of what was going on? So, you know, because it's, there's, it's a long story with different pieces, I realized that just that day, which is still Sunday, you know, there were such interesting things that happened because when, when I found out she was in Westchester, I immediately reached out to two people that had some medical knowledge and connections and one had given me the number of a rabbi there and someone had given me a medical liaison. So I had two different medical liaisons that were trying to help and get involved with stuff like that, and which was incredible. And they were in contradiction to each other. The person that my son-in-law chose, who was amazing, said that she was trying to figure out what the diagnosis was in order to refer her to the right hospital because it was clear that she needed neuro and Westchester hospital, right? You always hear people being airlifted to there. Yes. Um, their, their, their neuro ward was not necessarily the most sophisticated. So that was not the place for a case like this. Um, so one of the Manhattan hospitals would be where she needed to go. But they said, depending on what the diagnosis was, she had like two or three different hospitals. So she didn't know where to put her. Mm-hmm. What the other liaisons were telling me. And the other thing I want to say before I continue with this is that I want to tell you about the three things that were on my mind when this happened. Once this started dawning on me was that because at that point they intubated her on Sunday because the paralysis was spreading. And and I, I was there. So they told me that I have to persuade her to allow herself to be intubated because it was arguable if it was medically necessary. You know, it was like a clinical judgment call. Yes. They thought that I... I they thought that if the paralysis spreads because it was spreading very fast and it goes till her heart, then her heart's going to stop. So they wanted to do it before that happens. That was one of the reasons. The other reason they intubate is sometimes when the body's fighting something very big to give the body a break and let the body focus on healing. So the body, because yes. breathing takes up a lot of the body's energy, right? Mm-hmm. So these are two of the possibilities why they chose to intubate her, but they didn't, they still needed her permission. So they wanted me to, to give, to, to persuade her and she so you mean she was still awake and coherent and understood what was going on correct wow so i was standing there i and by the way i did not know what intubation means mm-hmm. i had not i had not in my life at that that's point. how fortunate your life has been up until this point correct correct yeah. i did not even know what it was i just knew that i'm supposed to persuade her to allow this procedure to take place so i i remember talking to her something about fighting fear with faith. And I paused for a second to collect myself and the anesthesiologist was right behind me and he said, go on. And I said to myself, oh wow, I don't even have privacy with me and my child. Mm -hmm. And I realized in the ICU, there's no privacy. You know, there's no boundaries and no privacy. No. No. So it it was a very weird situation. Let me ask you something though. In those moments, were you were you falling apart or were you just suddenly filled with this adrenaline of, of momhood that just overtook you and you were this strong superhero? I guess I would say the latter. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. not falling apart at that point because there was another patient that had a similar situation and this woman went to help and she said the woman, the mother didn't want to go in to see the child and she had to like, two people had to hold her up and they had to force her to go in. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, like, how could that be? But then I later came to understand how normal that kind of reaction was. For some reason, I have an ability to put my emotions on hold and deal with them later. 
Right. This, this is an ability that I have. Mm-hmm. I can do crisis mode. And that gave you the strength to, to navigate what sounds like a nightmare. Correct. So were you able to convince her ultimately? Well, I did, but they later told me that when she, when she came to consciousness, she pulled it out. Okay. And they had to intubate her again. So they told her that if she does it again, they're gonna ha- she's going to have to get a tube. So she didn't pull it out again. So let me ask you, what ultimately was the diagnosis and how long did it come to get to it? So the diagnosis was transverse myelitis um, th- because there was lesions on the spine. There was MRIs that were done and the lesions on the spine indicated that that was a disease. And I think that in the first week when they were treating her, they first gave her steroids and then they gave her plasma exchange. Um, They said that no matter what the diagnosis was, this would still be the treatment. So they were starting the treatment even while they were still debating the diagnosis. Oh, wow. Yes. And this particular illness, this is something that can just come on at any point because she was 23 years old and she was completely healthy. Right. So the next miracle that happened was that we got her transferred to Columbia. And what I want to say about that is that around Sunday after she was intubated, um, this, this situation suddenly became public knowledge. And I got an email that she's on the Tehillim list and she, people all over the world actually started saying Tehillim for her. So when, when they got her transfer to Columbia on Tuesday, they told us that in the history of this organization of working with patients, they never ever had a patient get transferred so quickly. Like it wasn't even medic, almost medically possible. Wow. And so the only thing I could attribute to was prayer mm-hmm. because because if it wasn't medically possible because of the way these hospital policies work, then that could be the only explanation. I'm just curious. Prior to this, were you somebody that, that took prayer seriously? Were you somebody that dedicated time to prayer? No, no. And, and this is definitely one of the changes that took place. I definitely always struggled with prayer because mostly because I never picked up on the Hebrew language um, and so I have a hard time understanding the words fully. And so therefore, prayer was not something that was very easy for me or natural for me. And I think after this, definitely, without understanding, I can pray with my heart. And during, during the trauma itself, did you find that you were turning to God and, and praying, whether it, was in, whether it was from a formal book or just, you know, on your own? So I did not actually pray. At that point, to God, I was relying on everybody else to pray for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was actually filled with a couple of things, and I'll tell you what they are. So there was three things that I thought about when this happened, and these were they. The first thing is, I said, God, I accept, and this was the best decision that I made, because I realized that that moment, that this thing was so big and could potentially crush me so quickly if I tried to think that I could take this on, that I completely surrendered. And I said, God, you do this. I'll just become a conduit. Wherever you want me to be, wherever you want me to go, that's where I'll go. But I am not trying to think that I can resolve this. So I I never had a situation where I had to completely 
surrender everything over to God. So that was the best thing. The next thing was that I said, I wish for nobody to understand me. Which was very powerful because sometimes in life we feel we need to be understood. And that need can be distracting. And I realized that the only way for anyone to understand me is if they live this. And I did not wish this on anybody. So that was very freeing for me, not needing to be understood. And and was part of just accepting, like, okay, this happened to me for some reasons that I don't understand. But I wish for this never to happen to anybody else. And the third thing was very interesting. Um, Two months prior, I had been to Israel to visit my son, who was single at the time learning in a yeshiva called um, Rabbi Tzvi Kaplan. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me about his Rosh Yeshiva that he had said that when he was in the hospital with his first wife for three years, he kept his tie and his jacket on because you don't change anything. That's all he says. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, like, what do I know about medical stuff and hospitals and why is he even saying this and what is the message? I just remember thinking it was just a very odd thing to say. Well, I didn't connect to what he was trying to tell me. And this had happened in February, just a very short time before. So as soon as this happened, I remembered, oh, my son gave me a message from his Rosh Hashiva about dealing in hospitals. And he says, you don't change. So I interpreted that to mean I want to try to live my life exactly the way it was before in every single way to whatever degree that I could. And so one of the things that meant was to attend Simcha celebrations that night, Sunday night that she was intubated. I had a bar mitzvah, I had a wedding, I had an engagement, and I attended all three. While I was at the wedding, the two liaisons were arguing with me. One of them said, um, you know, I, I, I told them that they're trying to find a diagnosis so they could figure out where to transfer her to. And they said, you don't understand. In, in this hospital, they don't have a good... Um, they don't have a very strong team in neurals, so they're not going to find a diagnosis. She, 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 there won't be anything left of her by the time you find the diagnosis. So get her out of there fast. Oh, God. Yes. And, and, and I didn't even have the saying power because I was the mom. It was my son-in-law that was actually dealing with it. So I was just getting the information right, without right. actually being able to do anything about it. Basically, I had the feeling of responsibility without the ability to have a voice and without the ability to actually make anything happen. That was my experience. And I remember thinking to myself, you guys, I don't have time for politics now. You guys get together, work it out, and save my child. Like, yes. I, don't, I don't have time for disagreements now. This is, you know, or egos or anything like that. But I noticed that everybody was really just trying to save the child and save the patient. That's all they were focusing on. But just, I guess it just opened my eyes to different parts of life that I never had access to before. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed because for you to say that you continued as best as you can to live your normal life and continue to go to other people's smachat, I mean, to be able to celebrate other people's joy when you're going through something that's so, so challenging, a part of me is like, how? How do you do that? But then this other part of me is like, that's actually so brilliant because, yeah, you were dealing with something difficult. But does that mean that your entire life now has to be dedicated to, to misery? Or are you still allowed, 
like you said, to live your life and to, you have other children, right? And you are still living a life and you still need to mother those other children as well. And so I guess it was all just in an effort to keep some semblance of normalcy. Absolutely. And thinking about it now, I'll tell you what really helped. You see, somebody said to me that if she was me, she would farm out the two-year-old granddaughter somewhere else. And she would just sit with her daughter the whole day because, you know, she's the mother, right? And I remember thinking to myself, you know, my daughter had a team of people. She had tens of people taking care of her and trying to save her. And this little granddaughter, who was thinking about her? Who was thinking about the trauma that she might have and being separated from her mother in this way? And so I decided that my job was to give her continuity and give her a feeling of that everything is normal. She was two. And right. I was like her grandma. She was used to coming to me and we had a great relationship. So seeing her face every day, she was the only person that didn't know what was going on. That really filled our home with light and gave us a sense of lightness and 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 enabled me, I think, to be able to deal with all this. So in the end, it turned out to be a gift. And what was really amazing was when COVID happened and people um, died of neglect in the hospitals and stuff like that, I remember thinking, wow, I trusted them with my child. I did go to visit my daughter every single day in the hospital, but and she was with someone at all times, but still I wasn't there with her all the time. I trusted them. Look how look how any everything could turn in a minute. The whole mm-hmm. world could turn in a minute. I couldn't believe how the world could just turn on people like that. It was amazing to me. But definitely adjusting to the schedule of a two-year-old while I was working and running to the hospital and not knowing what was going on, all of this was incredibly, incredibly challenging. But I think in the end, the lightness of having a two-year-old, I think, really helped. Yeah, definitely. It brings a spark of love and lightness and, and, and joy and everything. It brings that dimension back into the home. Yes. I want to ask you something, and I think this is something that probably every mom that's going to listen to this podcast could relate to, but I ask it even from a personal perspective. At any point, did you have any of that mom guilt? Did you ever have those moments of, what did I do to deserve this? Where, where did I go wrong? Why, why is my child being punished this way? So I'll describe to you the way it felt to me. I experienced a certain abandonment from God and I felt a little bit like, look, I spent a lot of time trying to build my family. And this child represented a lot of that because she's really the gifted one. You know, she's so bright and capable and brilliant. She had a master's degree before 20 and she taught high school and she just was a ballet teacher. She just had so many different gifts. And I felt a little bit like, God, like, were my efforts not valuable, but you had to destroy everything? I definitely had that feeling. Yeah, you know, I asked that question because I think about my own experiences in life and from the big to the small. And I think that as moms, and I'm sure dads can relate to this too, but maybe it's more of a mom thing. I don't know. But I've so many times had those moments when something would happen where I'd right away think to myself, if my child is suffering, it must be something I did. It must be something I did wrong. It must be some way that I messed up. It must be some way that I didn't do right. It must be something I could have done better. And and that's such an awful feeling because at the end of the day, things happen all the time in all ways to all people. 
right? And I really relate to what you just said. Like, it's just something that we wonder, like, like, why me? Like, why God? Why me? And, you know, I heard one time somebody who had been through a really difficult trauma and they had asked this person, like, did you ever think why me? And his response was, why not me? You know, why, why not? Like these things happen. Like you said before, you had been to the hospital numerous times on the other end there to try to cheer people up. All those countless families who were going through things, you know, it's never, it's never specified to one person. Everyone has their share of difficulty and challenge, but it's, it's hard. It's hard sometimes in those moments not to like look yourself in the mirror and wonder like, what did I do? Well, on a cognitive level, you know, I did say I accept. So I didn't have any cognitive questions then. And that really carried me. I felt like it gave me a sense of protection. And it gave me like that adrenaline that you described before. Yes. And it enabled me to do incredible things. And the people around me were like, how are you doing this? And I couldn't answer because it wasn't me, you know. But what the story you just said before about why me reminds me of something that happened to my daughter with her roommate when she was in Rusk in the rehab for like five weeks. And the person, the woman, this incredible woman that she was with, who's not alive anymore, um, she, she, she had much more debilitating experiences. And when people said, why me? She said, why me? Why not me? Who should it be? You? That's how she answered. Exactly. And I think there's also a dimension here of not having self-pity because we can go through something difficult, but what makes it even worse is the self-pity that's involved. Whereas what you're describing is a very pragmatic approach, which I really think is such an amazing way to be. Like, yes, this is difficult. Yes, this is challenging. I wouldn't choose this. I don't want this. But here it is, and let me tackle it as best as I can. But all the self-loathing and the self-pity and the whys, and the, it just it, it drowns you. So I, I did feel, I was very, very aware when it happened that God chose to give this to me when I was strong. And I remember times in my life when had a, such a thing happened to me, I would have definitely crumbled. I wouldn't have had this type of strength. And I noticed that. I was like, wow, God, you waited until I could handle it. And then you really hit, hit it, you know? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you mentioned her being in rehabilitation. So yes. I'm sure that anybody listening is really, really eager to know, how did we go from the ICU to rehab? So it's interesting because at the time when she was in Colombia, they had four of the top doctors in this disease come take a look at her. And they all said, we don't know. And that was another test of faith for me because I said, okay, God, you made it easy for me. It's not like there's science I can you know, believe in and say the science says this. The science is saying we don't know. So God, it's all on you. You know, you made it easy. You didn't even give me the option of believing in science, you know. Right. Um, but they did they did do the two treatments for her, the steroids. And I just went for my own observation. I observed that I didn't see the steroids helping her. They claim that you don't see the results right away. But I saw as soon as they started the plasma exchange, which took some time for them to decide to do it, and I don't fully understand the way insurance works, the way decisions around that works. That's also a complicated thing in itself. But as soon as she had her first plasma exchange, I think it was five times, like 
you know, every two days or something, mm -hmm. I, I saw that the paralysis began to recede. And so eventually she was able to be moved out of ICU. She was intubated for about a week. And then they put her into step down. And then they put her eventually into a regular ward. And when they brought her to Russ, which was miraculous that she was able to get in there because it's an amazing, amazing place. Um, and she had the most incredible physical therapist, grueling three hours a day. Like, like I spoke to a different patient who loved exercise and was able to do three workouts in a day. And she says, you can't compare physical therapy to ex regular exercise. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's where the empathy starts of me trying to understand what it's like to try to heal yourself through physical therapy, you know? Yes. It's incredible. You know, what was it like? Obviously, I'm not, I'm not here interviewing her to hear her perspective and experience, but as her mom, was there ever like that conversation that you had with her um, throughout this whole thing where you just sort of, you know, heard from her or, or she, she expressed to you how she felt or if she was afraid or if you expressed to her that you were, you know, proud of her or worried about her, like, was there ever that moment to have that real heart to heart conversation or was it both of you just marching forward and putting one foot in front of the other? Okay. So that's a very good question. Um, I, we always had a very good relationship before this happened and Definitely, our ability to speak about this topic became definitely very complicated because I did not really understand her. You know, it was very difficult for me to really see it from her perspective. And I think now we can definitely speak about it easily. And we, we definitely can share an understanding. But one of the themes that happens again and again is she says, Mom, you didn't know that? You didn't know this? She always says that to me. Basically, there's so many million little details about her experience that there isn't enough time in the world for her to truly, truly explain to me what she's lived, lived with and what she lives with now. That's what a big, you know, there's, there's such a big gap in, in conversation and truly being able to understand and therefore trying to figure out how I can best serve in the moment. And you said that you told me this prior to this podcast, but that since this has happened and, and thank God she has made such a drastic recovery, um, that she has chosen to spoke about, to speak about her experience publicly, correct? Yes, she, she has. Yes. And she, and she shares, and she shares her version of the events and she's able to talk about it, which is probably very healing for her too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very inspiring. In fact, while she was in the hospital and she couldn't speak when she was intubated, Every time a new person, a doctor, a nurse, anybody would come in, she would communicate with a person. She would say, what's your nationality? And then she would say, oh, I know something in that language. She would speak to them. And she was very, very able to relate to all the people. And it was amazing. Like she made friends with everybody that she met. And it was incredible to watch her be able to do that. And people told me that when to visit her, they said they felt that she inspired them rather than them inspiring her. Like just she was so positive and upbeat. It was amazing yeah, she to sound, watch. She sounds like an incredible human being. She is. She absolutely is. How long was she in the hospital in total? I believe in the end, there was five weeks in the hospital and five weeks in rehab. Wow. And so now, now, now this is going back already a few years, correct? Yes. And 
this is all in retrospect and she's and she's home and she's reunited with her children and there are side effects yes that she still has to live with yes are these lifelong side effects or are these you know just for a short period of time so i think what we're dealing with now is a bunch of un- uncertainty because everybody said because she's very young there's a lot of hope that she could really heal herself fully 100% and yet to actually make it happen in real time is very complicated so because she's not in a rehab all the time just focusing on a recovery and she has to also be there for her children and function as a wife and mother it's actually a very slow process her recovery but she really works very hard at it do you feel like it changed her as a person going through this absolutely she says it all the time absolutely and you see the changes in her too i do see the changes although i think she would probably be able to articulate them better than i meaning to me she still she you know she still might baby you know she's i mean she was amazing before you know like, yes yeah well then a the better question i guess is how did it change you as a mom Hmm. You know, I find that in my experience, mm-hmm. when I've gone through difficult experiences or difficult times that you kind of, when you see everything works out okay, you kind of want to like almost encapsulate the feeling of gratitude and recognition of what's important in life and you want to like move forward with that as part of your new way of living but then you feel that like everything in life it sort of starts to wear off and and you forget and you get back into your normal routine and your normal temperament and your normal aggravations and and instead of being constantly in a state of inspired you sort of fall back into your old habits and patterns so does something like this shake you to such an extent that it changes you forever in a positive way or do you find that you're now 3 years later and you're able to just to move on with life and it's not so, such a big part of your you know day-to-day thought process anymore okay yes now that you phrased it like that i think i can explain it like this you know because i am a psychotherapist and i am psychologically minded so from a healing perspective um i became interested in somatic therapy as a result of this which deals more with trauma and one of the things i learned was that there was shock shock trauma and social trauma most people deal with what she calls social trauma but this is a shock trauma to have somebody have a child go from 100% fine to like almost dying in in 24 hours is a shock trauma so um i definitely had some residual trauma in me which i recognized and i couldn't shake it off like regular talk therapy which had always worked for me was not working and after i took one of the trainings i decided to have a session myself with a person who was a world expert and i only had one session and in the one session i felt like i felt the experience as if i'm vomiting over and over again i didn't actually vomit but i just felt my body wants to vomit mm-hmm. and i felt like she because i was trusted her and i was very open to this i tapped into that place of how that part of me must have felt 
you know, those repressed emotions that I just didn't go there. Yes. And I was able to sort of shake it off. So I did feel after that, that a, a very important piece of the trauma was gone in me. And I was able to not have that block, that obstacle. So that was that piece. But in, in this particular experience, there's no such a thing as going back to normal. It's not possible. There's certain things in life where you, I felt like I was reborn again. I became a new person, you know, like the old, per, the old me was not here anymore. And I was a new person. And what is the difference between the old person and the new person? Uh, I guess a lot of awareness, right? Like awareness of prayer, awareness of the world around me, awareness of different kinds of suffering. I experienced COVID differently because of this. My entire COVID was only worried about her. Like for me, COVID was nothing. I did not have, I mean, I happened to have had it and, you know, I'm young, so I didn't have those concerns that people that are elderly have. Right. But, but I definitely was only worried about the fact that she was in a small apartment. She couldn't go out. Her kids weren't in school. She didn't have the strength to take them downstairs to play with them on their bikes. My whole concern was only about her. So I, I changed in my perceptions of the world, awareness, believe in prayer and connection to God. I would say these are some things that stay with me and life could never, ever go back to being the same again. Absolutely not. And so when you have a conversation with God now, yes, and you're expressing gratitude and all of that, it comes from a place of realization that at any moment things can just change and be different. That's it. It was a loss of the innocence. Yes. Right. Like, I feel like you get, you get that, that, that beautiful, naive feeling of everything's going to be fine sort of gets stolen when, when these traumatic things happen. Correct. And then it's replaced with the realization that life is so uncertain and there's just absolutely no certainty. And while that sounds like a negative, the way you describe it, it's really a beautiful positive because it gives you this, this new perspective on life. If only we can get it without going through something like this, right? Yeah. But, you know, I don't know a single human being that gets away unscathed. I see that life throws curveballs. And while not, not everybody experiences the same thing and not everybody has the same, you know, challenges, I do believe that everybody goes through a certain level of suffering. It, it's, it's what it is to be human. You know, life, life comes with a package and part of that package like King Solomon said, is, is the ups and downs of life, the good and the bad, right? And it's just, there's no escaping it. Hmm. Wow. I guess the three things that come to my mind about, you know, the way I dealt with the illness was reach inward, reach upward, reach outward. Inward is deep into myself to my inner resources. Upward is to connect to God. And outward is out to the community and to the love of people that really say, that really helped really helped me stay solid without without my connection to god and without the love of the community i don't think i would have been able to stay the way i did having the support of people in your life especially in those tough times when you really get to see the true nature of a person and you see that they have your back and it's unconditional and like you said you i love when you said how you didn't have to pray because there were so many people praying for you and you could just divulge your time into caring for your granddaughter and, and working and it, all the other millions of things that you needed to do. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. 
it's it, it takes a lot of strength to admit that I can't do it all by myself. I remember there was one story where there was a storm brewing and I came back and I brought the cleaners in and I suddenly lost my car key. I couldn't get in. And everyone said, you have to go to the supermarket to get groceries because tomorrow's coming a lot of snow. So I felt a strong urge to, you know, run and get the groceries. And somebody saw me crawling on the floor looking for my key. And he's like, what happened? And he says, you know, maybe you can call on the company. They can make you another key for like $200, $250 or something. And I was thinking about that. And then suddenly somebody called Javerim and they came and they opened my car and somehow the car key wasn't there, even though usually it doesn't lock, but this time it did. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, okay, even this organization I'm involved with today, God, I'm yours. Whoever you want to help me today, no problem. Come and help me. I'm here. I'm, I'm today. Like right now, my job is to be on the receiving end and I'm welcoming you with open arms. Whoever needs to help me should come help me. Yeah. And that's why I, I often try to remind myself that when we are in a position to be on the giving end of things, whether it's giving people encouragement or just giving monetarily, giving, giving someone a kind word, whatever it may be, to give with a full heart. Because like you said, that's the side of things you want to be on. You know, and so when you find yourself on that giving side, be generous with your time, with your resources, with, with, with everything. I, I think I now understand when people are generous givers that way, how they must have gotten there. They probably could have not gotten there by being children or by being, you know, thinking that life is just easy. They must have gotten there by getting their own blows and then turning into those people that can give generously like that. Yeah. And, and you know what, Pessy, that's really what it is. When, when these things happen to us, it's, you know, hard to understand it and it's hard to make sense of it. But like you said, it does, it does sort of chisel us into the magnificent creatures we're meant to be. And even though it hurts and we'd like to avoid it at all costs, at the end of the day, those pains really do create us into better versions of ourselves. Well, it's good to be at this end of things. And I'm so <laughs> glad that you are. And I'm so glad that I had this opportunity to hear this from you. I know that if I am moved and touched and honestly, there were points where I had to hold back my tears and listening to you. I could only imagine that everyone who listens to this podcast has so much to gain, um, so much insight. Because the truth is, is that when you sometimes hear a story like this, it does give you that ability to say to yourself, stop wasting time with nonsense. Stop holding that grudge. Stop being so sensitive, you know, stop, stop, stop. Just life is so fleeting and life is so fragile. And I, and I, I feel like that really is the message I take away from what you just shared with us. Wow. Thank you so, so, so much, Donna. It's amazing how this podcast, the way I was able to share in this way, you know, without thinking about what I was going to say, just letting the thoughts come this way. Did you ever think about becoming a therapist? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I, I might consider it. I might consider it. Really? That was incredible. Because again, like I said before, me listening to the podcast that you've done and just seeing your style made me realize, yes, this is the person that I would like to interview for my story. And you know what? 
I'm very discerning. I was right. You know, you know, I can't what? believe I, it. I, I'm really honored and humbled that you felt that way. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to God for putting you in my path and having us have this conversation. I know it's going to, it's going to enable me to be more, I don't know, a more introspective person and to really even just go through my day today, valuing time in a different way. And I can, and I want to thank you because you may not realize it now, but by sharing your experience that I know was painful, the lives that you could touch and the people that you could give strength to is, is really, is really immeasurable. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart and I wish your daughter continued strength and health and only wonderful good things from you for here, from here on. Thank you so much, Donna. It was incredible to spend the morning with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pessy. And to all of our listeners, I thank you for joining us on this beautiful episode of The Good Sign. I hope that you take away as much as I did. And I look forward to sharing many more stories of inspiration with you on many more episodes in the future. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your moments. Enjoy your time. Make the most of every single moment. Treasure it and cherish it. See you all soon. Thank you so much for joining.